Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Jacinta Del Hayes and Dr. Daniel Kahneman. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind the scenes look at the world's class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 23. Dan's joining us from home via Skype. Yeah, we're all under lockdown. So <laughs> for the next little while, we'll be having to do our recording via Skype. Yeah, so of course, this is because of the coronavirus outbreak. South Africa has gone into lockdown now, uh, like most of the world. And we were considering whether or not to put out this episode, weren't we, Dan? Yeah, but I think it's, I think it's good. I think that people are going to need some stuff to listen to and hopefully we can provide that. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, we all wanted a distraction. We all want to, you know, talk about something different and learn something new. So why not go ahead with that? We'll just have to put up with some low quality sound from Dan's end for a little while, but I think it's okay. And I've taken the recording equipment back to my house and I'm literally sitting in a blanket fort, which I made for myself for soundproofing. <laughs> Very professional. Yes, definitely. I'm going to put a picture of it on, on the social media so you can have a look. <laughs> I'm very proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So what are we talking about today, Dan? So today we're joined by Professor Patrick Boat, who is the uh, head of astronomy at the University of Cape Town, here in Cape Town. And he's also the principal investigator for the Thundercat project, which is a large science project on the Meerkat Telescope. As we'll talk about further when we chat to Patrick, the LSPs, as we call them, large science projects, are what Meerkat is mostly going to be focused on during its runtime. And Thundercat is one of those. It stands for the Hunt for Dynamic and Explosive Radio Transients with Meerkat, if you can figure that one out, how they got to that acronym. Just uh, another contrived acronym. <laughs> oh, astronomers love it. Okay, and so this is a survey in the radio with Meerkat to look for transients. Yeah, so what's a transient? A transient is something that goes bang, basically, an explosion uh, in space. It's something that wasn't there before and then happens now. It is a transient event. So it happens sometimes and not at other times. And one of these objects that Thundercat is going to be looking at is X-ray binaries. And what's an X-ray binary? <laughs> <laughs> well, we did talk a little bit about it in episode 21, I think, with Tana Joseph. She talked a lot about these X-ray binaries. A binary is uh, two stars going around each other and Often, one of these stars is a compact object. A compact object is something like a white dwarf or a neutron star or a black hole, something that's um, the fossil of the end of a star's life. And often, it means that this compact object is going to be sucking material off its companion star, which is still a big normal star with gas on it. And as this happens, it can release X-rays, and then it's called an X-ray binary. Yeah, so you're basically looking at two stars, what was two stars, orbiting around each other. One of them has now gone compact, uh, and the other one is just a, a regular star, right? Yeah, exactly. And 
part of what Thundercat's going to do is that they there's several known X-ray binaries and there's X-ray telescopes looking at them. And then Meerkat is going to regularly look at these same binaries in the radio and check whether they've changed, if they're releasing more or less radio waves, and then figure out what that means. And this is exactly what we're going to be talking about today, right? Because they've already spotted one. They have actually found a new one. While they were looking at one of these transients that they already knew existed, they spotted a new one and they've got a paper out on that. And they also found one of these transients that they were monitoring doing something new and crazy. And so they've published that in Nature Astronomy which is a quite a prestigious journal, they found that this object was emitting x-rays, so there was accretion happening, which means that the compact object is sucking in gas f- from its companion star. But then they found something special happening in the radio data with Meerkat in that it was releasing jets, so like huge ejections of, of material, of matter, um, electrons and stuff, near the compact object and it was being thrown out into space in one of the most energetic processes ever seen for this kind of event and being thrown out to one of the largest distances. Yes, I mean it's a very exciting discovery and and great to see that these sorts of discoveries are already coming out of Meerkat um, and some of the Meerkat projects. I think that we should probably speak to Patrick um, who will tell us about all about it and also about a couple of other things we spoke to him about such as the UCT Astronomy Department's 50-year anniversary and the Mirlech telescope, which we've mentioned once before, uh, which is another one of these multi-wavelength collaborations between Meerkat and, and in this case, an, an optical telescope. Yeah, great. Let's hear from Patrick. With us in the studio today is Professor Patrick Vaut, who is the Head of Department for Astronomy at the University of Cape Town. Welcome, Patrick. Hi, Jacinta. Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah. Hi, Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) So, Patrick, you are actually my big boss, I guess. (laughs) Tell us about yourself. I've been in South Africa for a long time. I did my PhD at the University of Cape Town, finished in 97, on large-scale structures of galaxies under the supervision of Tony Farrell. And I used many of the telescopes in Sutherland during that time. I went to ESO as a postdoc afterwards for two years, and I came back to South Africa in 2000. And I've been here ever since, initially as a postdoctoral fellow and later as a senior lecturer, associate professor, and now professor in the department. So you're from the Netherlands mm. originally, but you've spent most of your career here in South Africa. In the, indeed, yes. Yeah. So I grew up in the Netherlands, did my first degree in the University of Groningen. Um, but then, as I say, in 95, I came to South Africa. And you're now the head of the astronomy department at UCT, right? I am indeed, yeah. I've been for the last five years already. And you also have another role. You are one of the PIs, the principal investigator of the Thundercat project, which is an LSP, and that's a large science project for Meerkat. So we know from our previous episodes that Meerkat is a big radio telescope in the Karoo in South Africa, and most of the time will be doing observations for these LSPs. So these were proposed many years ago and went through a rigorous selection committee, and then several of the large projects were taken, probably taking, what, hundreds or thousands of hours each, and uh, Thundercat was one of those. So tell us about Thundercat. You're actually the first PI of an LSP that we've interviewed. So I <laughs> There you go. Uh, so tell us about Thundercat. Thundercat is a large program on Meerkat, which aims to study the 
accretion, the mass transfer of gas from one star to another. And these are very compact binaries. So they complete one binary orbit, for instance, in, in about an hour or an hour and a half. If you compare that to the Earth going around the sun in one year, or here you've got two stars, one very compact the size of the Earth, the other one maybe the size of the sun, completing one binary orbit in an hour and a half. So that means they are very close together. And when they're that close together, they transfer mass. And sometimes that mass, when it's transferred onto the compact central star, the most massive star, very exciting things happen. You get sort of explosions that throw material back into the interstellar medium. And that sort of outflow, that, that mass ejection, you can study in the radio. In this situation with compact binary, the compact object is the more massive of the two. That's right. And the the sun-like object or star-like object, that's the one that's losing its mass and slowly getting devoured by, oh. by the compact object. Surely the compact object can't be a normal star if it's the size of the Earth. That's right. So so in my case, the objects that I study, uh, the compact star is called what's called a white dwarf, which is uh, the end product of what our sun eventually will become. But there are other compact stars like neutron stars and black holes, stellar mass black holes, that are even denser, more dense than the, than a white dwarf. And so a neutron star has, has the mass of 1.4 times the mass of the sun, but it's the size of Cape Town, for instance, sort of 10 kilometers in size. So we've spoken previously about X-ray binaries. So X-ray binaries are basically a subclass of these compact binaries. You can have a, a binary system with a white dwarf as you're studying, and then, as you just mentioned, uh, a compact binary with a black hole or a neutron star, which are even more compact. That's right. And these white dwarf binaries that you're studying, they're obviously not visible in X-ray, they do have X-ray emission, but um, so the different wavelengths trace the different components of such a binary. Um, so, um, so in the white dwarf accreting binaries, um, the ultraviolet is the proxy for mass transfer. If the ultraviolet emission is very strong, the mass transfer is very high. The radio is the proxy for outflow from the system through various emission mechanisms. Um, in neutron stars, the proxy for accretion is not the ultraviolet, but even higher energy emission mechanisms, which is the X-ray. So when you study X-ray binaries, you want to study them in X-ray to study the accretion onto the neutron star and in radio to probe the outflow that's been induced by that accretion. Some of the material, excess material then gets thrown off the system. Okay, so there's a, a normal star and then there's a compact object like yes. a black hole or a neutron star or a white dwarf. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that some of the, the outer layers of this big star is being drawn onto this small compact object. That's right. If we see X-rays coming from this system, if we can detect the object in X-rays, then that means that it is undergoing this process of accretion, so where the outer layers are, are being pulled onto the compact object. And if we see it in radio waves, then that's telling us that there is this sort of outflow, these big ejections of of matter shooting mm. into space. Is that right? That's that's right. So what is the mechanism for these outflows? You're talking about mass falling onto a compact star. Why do we expect an outflow? Yeah, so there are different kinds of mechanisms in these binary systems. In the systems that are most familiar with the white dwarf accreting systems, you can have a cataclysmic outflow, which is a thermonuclear runaway on the surface of the white dwarf, which ejects the accreted material in an explosion, and it blows it off at very high velocities, up to maybe uh, 10,000 kilometers per second, which is incredible 
incredible injection of energy. But there are also more sedate ways of outflow, and that we haven't talked about this yet, but the mass transfer from the companion star to the white dwarf normally goes through an accretion disk. And sometimes that accretion disk gets into a, a higher state, a hotter state, which allows the mass to flow more efficiently onto the white dwarf. And you can have all sorts of wind mechanisms that blow material off. So you can have collimated winds creating an outflow. Okay, so you can have a thermonuclear detonation mm. of the white dwarf, or you can have the star layers being pulled towards the compact object in a disc, sort of like a, a dinner plate shape, right. right, going yeah. around this compact object and then sort of trickling onto the, the compact object. That's correct. Right. So this uh, isn't happening all of the time, right? These things are going to have these little explosions, these outflows, and then they're going to disappear. Yeah, so so these binaries, they exist in the galaxy. They're not many. If you have a normal star, the fraction of having these sort of binaries requires a specific evolutionary pathway that leads to this close compactness. At the most extreme end, you can have two white dwarfs orbiting each other every five minutes, but those are extremely rare. The process of mass transfer is a very sedate one. It moves material into a disk. Sometimes the disk goes into an outburst and the system brightens up. You can see that. For these cataclysmic variables, as we call them, that happens maybe uh, once every month in, in the process. It lasts a couple of days and then it goes back into a quiescent state. The nova outburst that um, happens on the white dwarf, that can happen on time scales of once every thousand years or, or once every few hundred years. There are a few known in, in the galaxy that uh, recur on a time scale of 20 years or 30 years, but typically that's a much longer process. You've just published a paper on one such detection uh, using Meerkat. How exactly when these things are rare, how is, how is Meerkat picking these up? Are you looking all the time for them or, or what is the strategy for finding these? That's an interesting question. So with, with Meerkat, we've been uh, using the telescope now since July 2018, a little over a year and a half. And what we do in this particular program to study the X-ray binaries, so the accreting neutral stars and black holes, is to monitor a number of systems that are active. And we know that they are active from the X-ray emission, what we discussed earlier. So when you see X-ray emission, you know that there's active accretion going on. So we follow active systems through X-ray monitoring. There are a number of X-ray satellites that pick these objects up. And once we see them, we uh, include them into our weekly monitoring list on Meerkat. So once a week, we have a monitoring slot where we typically sample maybe four or five of these systems uh, for 10 or 15 minutes. It can be quite a short exposure because Meerkat is so sensitive. Oh, wow, I didn't realize it was so short. Mm. So, so this is the Thundercat project, is it? That's right. From past research and observations, you already know where these binary systems are. Mostly, right? but some are new. Oh, some are new. Yeah. Okay. And then you can, and you can see them because they're in the X-ray, right. which is picked up by a different telescope. Is this SWIFT? So, uh, SWIFT is one of the telescopes that's very good for monitoring. Um, this particular one that we just published in Nature Astronomy is called Maxi J1820 plus 07. That just tells you where it is on the sky. <laughs> um, but the Maxi telescope is an X-ray telescope that's housed on the International Space Station. Cool. So this is obviously up in space. That's right. Uh, we need it to be above our atmosphere, which absorbs all of the X-rays. All right, so these other telescopes are spotting these flashes of X-ray, so we know that something special is going on in these binary systems, That's probably right. some accretion. And then with this weekly monitoring program you have with Meerkat, you go and look at these systems with our radio telescope. That's right. Right. Yeah. And then what do you see? 
we make images of these things. So we look at this variability or this time domain astronomy, if you wish, with Meerkat making images of the data. And so we can spatially resolve phenomena that are related to such a, such an event. So some of these systems, uh, X-ray binaries are known when they are in this heightened state of mass transfer to eject a transient jet that comes from the system. The, the jet moves at very high, high velocities, almost the speed of light, and sometimes they appear to go faster than the speed of light, but that's just a projection effect. What we do in this monitoring campaign is to study the behavior of the X-ray binary during this bright state to understand how accretion is linked to outflow, how the accretion probe by the X-ray is linked to outflow as probe by the radio emission. And in this particular case, we saw the transient jet resolved in the image and move away at very fast proper motions on the sky. So you could see the two jets on either side of the binary move very fast. A couple of things there. A transient transient jet is something which just happens once, it happens for a short period of time. So in these systems, when the X-ray binary is in the quiescent mode accreting, it is thought to have a permanent jet that ejects particles. And when the accretion switches on, that permanent jet gets disrupted. So the accretion disk then dominates and a transient jet is, is sort of ejected at that point. Um, so transient with transients, we mean something that varies with time. Okay, so something that's not always on. That's right. Right. Thundercat has already put out its first publication. Yes. Is that right? It came out in Nature Astronomy Journal that's on right. the second of March this year, twenty twenty, and uh, Nature Astronomy is quite a prestigious journal, hmm. meaning it's a very important discovery. So tell us from the start what this discovery was. This particular observation made it into Nature Astronomy because it, it told us something new and something special about the behavior of X-ray binaries for a number of reasons. So we were looking at a X-ray binary that suddenly went into a, a high state of mass transfer. We took images with Meerkat over a long time, about three months after the outburst till half a year after the outburst. And from that time series of images that we took, we could see two blobs, blobs for lack of a better word, blobs on the sky moving at very fast uh, apparent motion on the sky that were associated with this ejection of material. And do you know what the compact object was? In this case, the compact object is a black hole, stellar mass black hole. So it's a black hole going around a normal star. Other way around. Normal star, a normal star going around <laughs> the black, black hole. hole. Right, That's of right. <laughs> One has more mass well, than the other, right? <laughs> going around that common center of mass. Sure. <laughs> That's our undergrad physics coming back to us. Okay, so you saw these two blobs on the sky with radio, and you mentioned that one of them seemed to be superluminal, which is this beautiful word that means traveling faster than the speed of light. So, what's going on there? The jet itself is moving close to the speed of light, and the approaching jet, because it's closely aligned to our line of sight, appears to be moving faster than the speed of light, but this is an apparent effect. It's just a ge geometric effect that you can easily calculate. You can work out what the actual velocity is based on that. The real key aspect of this particular observation is that we observed it with Meerkat, and Meerkat has 64 antennas based over a 8-kilometer baseline, giving you a specific resolution. At the same time, we've also observed it with the E. Merlin radio telescope in the UK, which is an array of telescopes over the full length of the UK, giving us a much higher resolution image. And so we were able to resolve the uh, relativistic ejector and on two different scales. And by doing that, we can calculate the energy. 
of the uh, injection of energy into into these jets and that wasn't done before and we realized that um, the energy that was launched into these jets was much larger than we previously thought so that was the new insight into the behavior of x-ray binaries and black hole ejections relativistic ejector moving at the speed of light or close <laughs> yeah. to the speed of light <laughs> you just throw that one in there hey? <laughs> so so basically this is the so you you've managed to measure the energy which this gas was thrown out of the system that's right by observing it with two different telescopes at the same time with different resolutions and that allowed us that that extra insight very cool so you mentioned earlier this was uh, the first paper, but in fact we have eight papers out already on Thundercat. Oh, really? Yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness, I didn't so, realize so there's there a whole was so range many. of papers. We've discovered our first radio transient, and this turned out to be a very unusual binary star. Um, and that paper was published also earlier this year by Laura Dreesen, who is a PhD student in Manchester. What was it, this weird system that you found? In this case, it was a stellar binary of a star that is very active, chromospherically very active. So the sun sometimes has chromospheric activity. Uh, this particular star is, is very active. It's called an RSCVN binary, named after its prototype. It has a 22-day periodicity, and SALT was able to take spectra to confirm its nature. And so with the radio, we could see it move up and down in brightness. Sometimes it wasn't there at all. Uh, sometimes it was there very bright. And so on this weekly monitoring schedule that we do, we are, we are hoping to find many, many more of these radio transients. And this was the first one of its kind. You're detecting all these things with Thundercat. For the, the one we were just talking about, the compact object, you followed up with a, another radio telescope. And for this one, you were following up with SALT. Is there a formal program for following up these things in, in different wavelengths for when you find a transient object, do you have the capacity to follow up with other telescopes immediately? This is a very good question. The nature of this this kind of astronomy is very much multi-wavelength astronomy. We mentioned earlier that the X-ray trace parts of the physics of, of these binaries. The radio trace is another part of the physics. In the optical with spectroscopy, we can characterize the binary using uh, optical spectroscopy to see what the nature of the stellar component is or stellar companion is. And so ideally, you want to have a network of telescopes around the world that can follow these things as simultaneously or quasi-simultaneously. Now, when we designed the survey to find all these new objects in the radio data, trying to make Meerkat and later the SKA as a transient discovery machine, this particular question came up. How do we characterize these systems at other wavelengths? And so that's when um, Paul Groot, who's a colleague of mine, and Rob Fender and myself, I sat together and saying, well, let's build our own telescope, the Meerlich telescope, that will follow in real time wherever Meerkat is looking, the same part of the sky. So we have an optical telescope that will always co-observe with Meerkat. So that if, if we find something, we will know in the optical what that part of the sky is doing. And we can then relay that automatically, almost directly to telescopes like SALT. There is a, a program on SALT that allows for immediate or very fast follow-up of any any unusual kind of behavior. So the idea is basically that Meerlicht, this optical telescope, tracks wherever Meerkat is looking. And the moment that something is identified as with Meerkat, you see if it's also visible in the optical with Meerlicht. Right. And then if necessary, you can follow up with a larger telescope such as SALT. 
That's right. So then on what sort of time scale are you analyzing this data? Is the Thundercat data analyzed instantly? Almost instantly. The aim is to do it in real time. Uh, what we're doing at the moment is that once the data gets taken from the crew, from, from where the uh, telescope is, it gets moved to the um, archive, the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory archive, and we pull it into our cloud-based compute resource at the university. There's the Inter-University Institute for Data Intensive Astronomy idea and that has a cloud-based compute facility where we analyze all our data. And within an hour of the data being taken, we move it across. That process goes quite quickly, depending on how, how large the data set is. And then we can immediately reduce and analyze our observations. So within 24 hours, we will know what's going on. So you need a supercomputer cluster to be able to process all of this data. That's, That's right. So much. That's right. And is this automated or does somebody have to be sitting there? It is fairly automated. There are a number of scripts that we can run that, that sort of then take it in, in a semi-automated way. The goal is to develop this into a full automated pipeline where we work in near to real time to, to see what's happening so that we can respond to near to real time. The optical data gets also transferred from Sutherland, in this case, to the same compute infrastructure at, at the university, and there an image gets ingested once it's completed. So every minute, at the moment we've got a minute cadence on the optical telescope, a minute repeat time frame. So at the moment, every new image gets ingested into the database, automatically reduced, and that's then injected into a database of sources all over the sky. So does the feedback work the other way around then too? If Mir Licht observes something that's transient, does it tell Mir Cat? Eventually, yes. At the moment, we're still testing out uh, our transient detection algorithm on Mir Licht. In the optical sky, uh, you have to be careful for what's called false positives. Uh, there can be uh, artifacts in the data analysis that might look like a transient, but in fact, it's it's an artifact of the data reduction. And you have to be very careful not to issue issue false alerts. But uh, eventually, once that is working and once we're finding transients in the optical database, we would like, in, in some cases, to feed that back to Meerkat. But that needs to go through a, um, a program, maybe a, a Thundercat program, where we have a target of opportunity where we can point the Meerkat telescope then. But if a transient is occurring in the field in the Miller data, we most likely will have Meerkat data of that field because the two telescopes are tied together in that sense. So we, we should be able to see what's going on in the radio at the time where we see an optical. That's really impressive that you've essentially attached this optical telescope to the radio and it tracks exactly the same position as whatever the radio telescope's looking at at that moment. Has this been done before? Not not as far as I know. So um, the, the, the unusual thing here is that the uh, Meerkat telescope has a very la a large field of view which is great for finding new transients. It increases your probability of finding something in the field of view because you're just looking at a much larger field of view. But traditionally, optical telescopes have a much smaller field of view. So to match that uh, meerkat field of view, which is typically um, one square degree of the sky, so imagine a grid of two by two full moons together, to match that in the optical, we needed to design a wide field camera that is both uh, simplistic in operation for a robotic operation, as well as uh, giving giving you that wide field of view. And so the design then led to the Meerlicht concept, which has a single electronic camera underneath, 
with 110 million pixels, which can be uh, read out in seven seconds. So That's very, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of pixels. <laughs> uh, can be read out in seven seconds. So we take an image of the sky every minute, and then seven seconds later, we can take our next image. The data flow from that is, is not too high, although you mentioned earlier the Thundercat data flow is, is quite large. At the moment, it's about 100 gigabytes for every one hour of observation, and that's in the low time resolution, low frequency resolution. That can easily be up to a factor of 30 more. I imagine that because you have to, it has to have such a wide field of view to match Meerkat, you have to have some sort of trade-off, probably sensitivity? Yeah, so, so when you do the optical design of a telescope that, that simultaneously has that wide field of view, you, you optimize very quickly to a, a telescope size of about 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7 meters. So that's small-ish for an optical telescope. But within a minute of observation, we reach down to a magnitude of 21, uh, 21st magnitude for point sources, for star-like sources, which is at this stage the optimal uh, limit for a spectroscopic follow-up on SALT. The bigger the telescope, the more sensitive, but with our current design, within a minute, we, we basically have an optimal follow-up for salt, and we reach a very faint level of brightness. Okay, it's got a pretty good sensitivity, mm. or I guess brightness limit, which is the equivalent word in optical astronomy <laughs> or radio. So this is going to say uh, there was something seen with Meerkat, we saw it at the same time in the optical, this is an interesting thing, now let's go and look at it again with SALT, which right. is a more sensitive, bigger telescope, right? That's right, yeah. So you seem to be pretty well set up to detect these transients. And we, I mean, we, we were just chatting earlier about one you've detected, and you've detected a few now. With Meerkat, we, we really are expecting some new discoveries. There's things we, we can't expect hmm. to, to find. In your mind and in the field of transients, what, what are you expecting? What, what is exciting in Meerkat? The exciting thing in time domain astronomy is to look at things that vary on very short timescales. I think over the last 10, 20, 30 years, we've very well characterized things that vary on a timescale of days or weeks or months. Uh, the Nova explosion, the, the thermonuclear explosion on the White Wolf that I mentioned earlier, those are fairly well studied. But we know very little about how the objects in the night sky vary on timescales less than a day, on timescales of an hour or a minute or even below a second. That is very exciting objects called fast radio bursts uh, that give you a, a single pulse of maybe 10 milliseconds in, in time that come from cosmological distances in galaxies far, far away. And we want to characterize their sources. We're now discovering, astronomers are now discovering these in quite large numbers, but still with fairly poor localization on the sky, although that's getting better. So one of the things that Meerkat and Meerlicht can do is to identify and locate them, but also locate the optical counterpart to those fast radio bursts, the host galaxy in which these things reside. These are once-off events, so if you're not on the sky when when this happens, you, you would have missed it. So by having the wide field of view, you have a greater probability of finding these things. And nobody has observed that yet? Some have been observed. Some, some of these systems are repeating sources, and we don't quite know why some are repeating and some are not repeating. But for some of the repeating fast radio bursts, they have been localized quite well and there are host galaxies associated with it. 
Well, we have so many questions about transience because we know so little about it and we could talk about it all day. But I know you're a busy person. We have to let you go soon. Um, before that, I'd like to just talk about the University of Cape Town Department of Astronomy because it's celebrating a special anniversary this year. That's right. Thanks, Jacinta, for asking that. This year, it's uh, our 50th anniversary of the Astronomy Department at the University of Cape Town. It was established in 1970 as a formal department. Uh, most astronomy departments around the world actually are part of a physics department. Ours grew out of the physics department at the UCT. Uh, the director of the observatory in, in Cape Town was an honorary professor of astronomy in the Department of Physics. But at the time when the observatory changed into the South African Astronomical Observatory and the Sutherland Observatory was being established in, in the Northern Cape in South Africa, uh, the University of Cape Town decided that it was time to set up its own Department of Astronomy, which is now 50 years ago. So we've, we've been doing great astronomy in the last 50 years, and there's a lot of excitement, of course, with Salt and Meerkat to look forward to. And, uh, and we're celebrating this wonderful milestone with a lot of activities, public talks, uh, outreach events, and so on. And I'm uh, part of the current generation there as a postdoc at UCT. Are there any of these celebration events that some of our listeners, particularly those in Cape Town, can participate in? We've had a number of things already. We had a public talk by the president of the International Astronomical Union uh, recently, but throughout the year we will host a number of talks and events. We will advertise them on our website and on our Facebook site as well. We will post them to the public. And uh, given the close history that our department has with the South African Astronomical Observatory, we are also celebrating a major milestone this year. We will see how to coordinate the 200th anniversary of the SAO with activities around the 50th anniversary of the astronomy department. Oh, great. Well, Dan's sitting right next to you and he's running the <laughs> <laughs> Yep. We, uh, Patrick and I have spoken about these okay. things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we've, we've come up with some ideas mm. which we will implement. And Patrick, is there any significant moments that happened in the last 50 years of the UCT astronomy department? Sure. That's a, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least what you can remember. Yeah. <laughs> well, you gave a really great talk at, uh, at the start of the year about the history of the department. That's and there right, were quite a yeah. few. There are lots of wonderful milestones. Yeah. So, so we, we've had great people, great students coming through the department, people who've gone on to find significant posts across the country, across the globe in astronomy. In terms of the work that we've been doing over the last 50 years, it's, it's quite interesting to see that what the astronomy department started with in 1970 was searching for supernovae and galaxies and uh, studying compact binaries and uh, the astrophysics of, of these cataclysmic variables, that uh, a lot of new insight has been gained in those, in those areas and that the astronomy department is still doing a lot of work in, in these areas. Particularly, I think uh, the highlight has been the uh, the inclusion of radio astronomy over the last 15 years with, with Meerkat on the horizon. We've become specialized in radio astronomy, both in the stellar astrophysics side, but also in extragalactic astronomy. The study of neutral hydrogen, for instance, is one of the strengths in the department that I'm very proud of. Awesome. And just lastly, before we let you go, are there any other final messages you have for listeners? So, so one of the things that's happened in the astronomy department over the last 15 years since 2006 is that we restarted our major in astrophysics, and that's grown and grown. And this year we have 25 30 year students 
which is the largest group that we've ever had. And we organize open days. And so my message to people who are out there who consider a career in astronomy is be curious, be inspired by what goes on in the sky. There's a lot of, of things still still to discover. Uh, Meerkat is a fantastic machine. So for 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 the next generation of astronomers in South Africa and the learners at schools, if you want to know what the universe is made out of, you're in the right place to come and study that. Great. Thank you very much for joining us, Patrick. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Patrick. A great and pleasure. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. When you make another discovery. <laughs> <laughs> I think this concept of Mirlicht is very, very cool to have an optical telescope that's essentially attached to the radio telescope so that it, it's looking at the same place as the radio telescope at all times. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that's, you know, we, we talked about Thundercat and the, that, that awesome discovery. There's going to be a lot more from Meerkat, but getting more and more wavelengths involved here, and I think it's just going to be an, another fascinating avenue of astronomy to go down. So. The, the Mirlach telescope is, is definitely going to make some awesome discoveries and contribute to, to some of the discoveries we've already made. Yeah, a very, very exciting project, very cool, and uh, as we said, the first time that this has been done somewhere in the world. Yeah, because usually one telescope in one particular wavelength will will spot an interesting object and then send out an alert to all other telescopes, which will then look at it. But in the time it takes for that alert to be made the transient occurrence may already be finished. So it's really great that you can have, at exactly the same time, both radio and optical observations. Yeah, I mean, you should note that sometimes those alerts go out within seconds. Sure, yeah. And telescopes can, can follow up, but seconds are sometimes not enough for these transients. Mm. Yeah, exactly. All right, I guess so the, the 50th anniversary celebrations of UCT and the 200th anniversary celebrations of the observatory is that going to be, I guess that's going to be impacted a bit by this coronavirus uh, lockdown? Yeah, for sure. So we're not really sure how this is going to go and where we'll be in October. Most of the, the celebrations were planned for October. But at the moment, we're talking about various contingency plans, uh, potential postponements. Uh, we have planned a large astronomy festival. We're looking at maybe doing it virtually, which will be quite cool, actually. It's, it's definitely concerning, but... The least of our worries right now. I think everyone's health is, is a bigger concern and, and trying to keep safe. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's health and safety is by far the, the top priority. Yes, keep safe out there, guys. Yeah, wash your hands, keep social distancing. You know the deal. All right, good luck, everybody, and uh, we'll hope to chat to you again soon. Yeah. All right, see you later. Cheers. Okay, Dan's logged off Skype, so that leaves me to do the credits. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah. You can visit our website, thecosmicsavannah.com, where we'll have links related to today's episode. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. Special thanks today to Professor Patrick Vout for speaking with us. Thanks to Mark Olnut for music production, Janis Brink for the astrophotography, Lana Serai for graphic design, and Tabisa Fikalepi for social media support. Also to Sumari Hatting, Brandon Endelbrecht, and Lynette Delhays for transcription assistance. 
We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation, the South African Astronomical Observatory, and the University of Cape Town Astronomy Department to help keep the podcast running. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to help us out, please rate and review us and recommend us to a friend. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll speak to you next time on the Cosmic Savannah.